Welcome to the Firearm Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Before we get into today's topic, a quick mention of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at the FTA, Firearm Trainers Association. Head on over to the website, FTA Protect to receive a special 10% off discount code for switching your instructor insurance over to them. This episode is also brought to you by the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app. The best resource for any firearm instructor and their students is also free. Available for both Apple and Android devices. Search your app store for Concealed Carry Gun Tools today and download this free app. Find maps, gun businesses near you, legal summaries, articles, videos, training logs, and this podcast. Don't miss a beat on the industry. Download the app today. Today, we will be discussing three legal myths instructors keep telling their students with Andrew Branca. Andrew is an internationally recognized expert on American self-defense law. Now in his third decade of practicing law, Andrew also nationally consults for other lawyers in high-profile self-defense cases. He is a former guest instructor on self-defense law at the Sig Sauer Academy, is frequently a a featured guest at law school gun law and symposiums around the country and provides legal expertise to such news outlets as the Wall Street Journal and NPR. Andrew is also a multi-division masterclass competitor in IDPA, NRA instructor, and author of The Law of Self-Defense. Welcome, Andrew. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Great, Andrew. We'll jump right in and uh, start getting your uh, feedback on what instructors say that might not be the best thing for our students. First one is, what should instructors be telling their students what to say to the police after an incident? Should they talk at all or just completely clam up? So there, there are certain subtleties on this topic that I think many people, including many firearms instructors, haven't completely thought through. So I'd like to touch upon those. Uh, first of all, if you talk to a um, hundred criminal defense attorneys, a hundred of them will tell you, "Don't say a word to the police." Uh, one, they say that because their 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 perception is that you're far more likely to complicate your legal defense than you are to help your legal defense by saying anything to the police, and they don't want you making their job harder. The other is that they're naturally biased by the fact that if you're a criminal defense attorney, most of your clients tend to be criminals. Criminals tend to First of all, not only be not very smart, so they don't know what they ought to say or not say, but also they tend to be generally guilty of what they're suspected of doing. Uh, if you have a guilty client, you definitely don't want them talking to the police under any circumstances. Um, I, it's somewhat different for law-abiding gun owners, but I, I have to say, if you're a law-abiding gun owner who has not seriously thought this through, has not given serious thought, well-informed consideration uh, to what you might want to say and not say to the police. The mere fact that you've got a concealed carry permit and you're a law-abiding citizen and had to lawfully defend yourself, that doesn't prepare you for talking to the police. That's not enough. So if that's your position, probably not saying anything to the police is your best bet too. Uh, it's hard to go wrong with that approach. There are, however, uh, weaknesses to that approach. I think there is an optimal, a more perfect approach to interacting with the police than saying nothing. It's the procedure that I was taught when I took Masayub's Lethal Force Institute course 30-some years ago. Uh, it's what I've taught many years myself. We still teach this approach in my classes. And basically, it's, it's not say nothing, and it's certainly not say everything. It's say a few very specific things, uh, things like 
uh, the fact that you had to defend yourself, things like identifying witnesses and evidence that are favorable to you. We spend over an hour on this in my own law, self-defense level one class. So we don't have time to cover all those details. Uh, but what I would caution for instructors who are teaching some variant of that approach, don't say, uh, don't tell the police, I don't want to say anything until I talk with my lawyer. Tell them these handful of specific things. I would, I would caution instructors that it's been my experience that although that's a, from a legal perspective, that can be a, a better approach. It can, it can avoid leaving value on the table that the say nothing approach leaves on the table. It can also be a very high risk approach for people who've just experienced the stress of a life or death fight. Uh, they may have thought in their heads when they took your lesson that, well, if anything ever happens, these are the five things, or here's the card I got from my self-defense insurance company that has printed on the back the five things I should say to the police. Thinking you'll be able to do that is one thing. Being able to actually do it under stress is completely different. I can tell you in my own classes, uh, one of the options we have is to run students through a, a self-defense simulator. It's a very high-end $20,000 simulator system. and it's they they're shown some kind of threat video and they use a an infrared laser gun to solve the problem the self defense problem and then when they're done they have to explain to the rest of the class what they saw what they did and why they did it now this is a totally artificial environment there's no actual physical threat to any of the students but the stress they experience is unbelievable afterwards you can see their hands shaking their voices shaking and you know what they can't remember what they saw and they can't remember what they did and if that's how debilitating even that level of artificial stress is to our normal cognitive function, and it is, I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times, you can only imagine how much worse the stress is and how much more debilitated people's thought processes are after a genuine life-threatening life encounter where they could have died. So I, I've grown concerned in the years since I've been using that simulator in my classes that although there is this optimal approach of say just a few things and then clam up, I grow concerned that many people under the stress of that life or death attack won't be able to follow that game plan. Mm -hmm. And if your practical choices, your real world choices are say, listen, um, maybe say I was attacked. I can't say anything more until I talk to my attorney on the one hand and blathering away on the other hand, don't be blathering away. Uh, then your best option is really to say as little as possible, perhaps nothing except that you assert your right to silence, you assert your right to counsel and let your lawyer take it. Mm -hmm. I think one thing from my experience where I always advise my students on this is they need to go along and send a minimal amount. And they also have to keep in mind that there could be multiple officers that come up to them and ask them until their lawyer appears and they need to be ready and able to go along and repeat that multiple times to make sure that it's not just a patrolman. It is a supervisor. It's a sergeant. It's a lieutenant who comes up and asks you different questions to to get their understanding and you need to go along and assert those, uh, the same information each time or be quiet in order to, uh, properly assert your rights during those. Yeah. So I, I do have some thoughts on that actually. And, uh, to the extent that a, uh, an armed citizen thought it was appropriate to say anything to responding officers, whatever they choose to say, they should only say once before okay. they have their attorney present. I would definitely not be telling the story multiple times. Because invariably, there's going to be variations in what you say. That's only natural. And a prosecutor can make it look like you were telling one officer one thing, another officer a different thing. When were you lying? Right? Both of those things can't be true. Did you fire two shots or three shots? Because your brain won't remember. The way your, your brain 
captures and stores and recalls information under stress is completely different than our normal experience. And it's perfectly normal, even for police officers in the aftermath of the use of force event where they've had to fire their gun to not remember how many shots they fired or who was around or what color the guy's shirt was. This is totally normal because it's how our brain works under stress. But when those inconsistent statements are being evaluated by people like a prosecutor or a jury who are not under stress, uh, it just looks like lies to them, those inconsistent statements. So you definitely don't want to put yourself in a position where you've made multiple statements that can now be compared and they look wrong. And by the way, even if you were magically able to say the exact same thing to two or three different people, their notes could differ, right? How they heard it and how they wrote it down could be varied. And that's what's going to be recounted back in the courtroom. So even if what you said didn't change, it can be made to look as if it changed. And not because anyone's trying to set you up, but because just that's just the way the brains of officers are human beings too, and the way they hear and translate and record conversation. Based upon um, the question they ask you too, I bet, I right. bet you it too. Be, it would be shocking if they did it perfectly, right? I don't think anybody can really do it. We're not tape recorder machines. Um, so telling any kind of narrative, uh, especially under stress, more than once is a mistake. Um, now, if you say something just once at the scene and then, you know, 12 hours later, you have your attorney present and there's a slight variance in your story. That's one variance under very different circumstances, not two different stories that happened within a few minutes of each other to two different responding officers. Another thing I would caution is that uh, we've all heard that we have the right to silence and if we remain silent, that can't be used against us in a court of law. And that's absolutely true. That's a constitutional right. But what many people don't understand is that right has to be triggered. It has to be put into effect somehow. It's not always present. Um, and typically, it's triggered in one of two ways. Either you're Mirandized by the responding officer, so they read you your Miranda rights. That triggers, in effect, your right to silence. So um, uh, once you've been Mirandized, if you assert your right to silence, they can't ask you questions. Um, or you can affirmatively assert your rights yourself. You don't have to wait to be Mirandized. You can simply say either say nothing to the police or say whatever it is you choose to say and then stop. But when you're done saying whatever you want to say, assert your rights. I assert my right to silence. I assert my right to counsel. Uh, then they're not allowed to continue asking you questions. There's no compelling reason for you to speak any longer. And no one afterwards can talk in front of a jury about the fact that you stopped talking that you didn't answer their questions. So if you assert your right to silence and they ask you questions and you refuse to answer, that can't be used against you in court. But until that point, until you've been Mirandized or until you've affirmatively asserted your rights, if they ask you a question and you don't answer before one of those triggers, that can be talked about in court. So if you've just had to shoot somebody in self-defense and a patrol car screeches up and a cop jumps out and he goes, what happened? and you just fold your arms across your chest and refuse to say anything, he's allowed to talk about that in court. He's allowed to say, well, I, I didn't know who this person was. If he was a witness, he, I didn't know he was a suspect. I didn't know anything about him. I just asked for general information, and he refused to say a word to me. Well, that's not going to look good in front of a jury. So once you're prepared to take the position of, you know what, I'm just going to seal my lips and not say a word, make sure you assert your rights before you do that. Because if you don't assert your rights, then they're allowed to talk about the fact that you refuse to communicate with the officer, and that doesn't look good. Good advice. I'll, that's definitely a point that I will uh, take into consideration. Future concealed carry classes that I'm teaching. Very, very good advice, Andrew. Appreciate it. 
one one little uh, tangent from that when it comes to talking to emer- uh, the first responders the uh, fire uh, or the paramedics or say emergency room say you were injured and we take it in what's your advice to when it comes to uh, talking to them about it and they ask you what happened or something like that from, during the diagnostic pr- uh, process well you certainly don't want to be talking to them about uh, any the, any of the, the self-defense aspects of the interaction with your attacker. He did this, I did this, anything that would normally describe the, the self-defense that occurred, uh, because that would all be admissible as evidence. That You may as well be talking to the police officers. It's no different there. Uh, naturally, that doesn't mean remain silent about your injuries. You know, If you've been shot in the gut, you'll want to tell them, I was shot in the gut. So you don't have to seal your lips about the nature of your injuries and what treatment you may need. Uh, but that's completely different than saying, uh, you know, while we were yelling at each other, it was a road rage event. The guy got close to me and then I shot him and then he shot me. I mean, you definitely don't want to have that conversation with the first responders because I can assure you uh, the investigative officers are going to talk to the first responders and say, well, did he say anything about what happened? Because if you did, that will be admissible against you. Mm hmm. Very good. Let's move on to the next uh, topic that I hear instructors talking about is that you can just take and draw your gun when you feel threatened. You're walking down the street and all of a sudden you see some threatening dude coming at you and you feel threatened. So under the law, quote unquote, you're allowed to draw your your firearm to defend yourself. Where are the problems with a statement like that? Yeah, this is a... a a real serious problem, uh, especially among the general public, because they read this in newspapers all the time. Newspaper reporters all the time will write in their articles, especially if they're writing about stand your ground or something they think is stand your ground, that it's kind of a, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, uh, that all you need to do is feel frightened and, and you can just pull your gun and shoot somebody. And of course, that's not the law at all. Yes, you do have to have a fear of harm, but it has to be a reasonable fear of harm. And in particular, if we're talking about the prospect of deadly defensive force, it has to be a fear of deadly force harm. Uh, we, we mentioned before we started the show, we recounted how we teach the five elements of a claim of self-defense. And just in summary, they're innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. If I were to string them simply in a sentence, it would be in order to be justified in using a deadly defensive force, you have to have a reasonable perception of an imminent threat of death or grave bodily injury. And if you're in a stand-your-ground jurisdiction, like unfortunately where you are, Ohio remains a stand-your-ground jurisdiction, um, you have that element of avoidance. If you have a safe avenue of retreat, you're required to take it before you can use deadly defensive force. Unless you're in your home, which I think we'll talk about a bit later in the show. Um, The key here is that before you can be justified in using defensive force, and particularly deadly defensive force, you do have to have um, a perception, a belief that you're facing a threat. But the catch is that perception has to be a reasonable perception. Uh, what, what the law calls bare fear, irrational fear, is not enough to support a justification claim for a use of force. And when I say it has to be a reasonable fear, reasonable is used in the technical sense here. There has to be evidence, things you saw or things you heard to which you can apply your powers of reason to come to a reasonable conclusion that you're facing a threat. Uh, A speculative fear or an imaginary fear is simply not sufficient. Um, One of the things I hear all the time in the self-defense community is, well, under those circumstances, I would shoot that guy because 
for all I know, he could have a knife or he could have a gun. No, no, that's not the basis for a reasonable fear of deadly force harm. That's speculation. That's imagination. Um, you, you would, for that to be sufficient, you'd have to have evidence from which you could reasonably infer he has a knife or a gun. So maybe he tells you he has a knife or a gun. That might be enough. Maybe he reaches for his hip or his waistband as if he's reaching for a weapon. And there's other circumstantial evidence that's consistent with him reaching for a weapon under those conditions. Uh, That might be enough. You don't necessarily need to see a knife or a gun, but you have to have a reasonable basis from which to infer there's a knife and a gun. You can't just imagine it. People are often taught, and I've seen this in many self-defense classes, uh, that it's really important if you use force against another person in self-defense that you have a narrative to support that decision, a story, a reason. And, and that, that's true, but just the narrative by itself is, is meaningless unless that narrative can be based in evidence. Why did you believe that narrative? Why did you come to those conclusions? What did you see? What was said? Because a narrative that's independent of evidence is worthless in court. Very, very good points. Um, when it comes to all that stuff. So, you know, bad guys walking down the, or I'd say big guys walking down the street and heading toward you, you've got to go along. And as you said, we've got to have, you know, you got to be innocent being there, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. And as I tell most of my students, it's as simple as crossing the street, going the other way. You know, you don't have to go along, get yourself into that kind of uh, confrontation because I'll, I'll quote you, Andrew, on this is anytime you're in a self-defense situation, you have a greater than zero percent chance of being injured yourself. And that's one of my biggest reasons to tell people to uh, retreat. It may not be uh, legally mandated, but it's uh, it's uh, will allow you to see another day. For sure. Anytime you can you can consistent with safety, avoid having to use force against someone. And I emphasize consistent with safety. I'm not suggesting you increase your jeopardy. But anytime you can avoid actually having to use force against someone, you're better off. You do not want to be using force against people because it opens up a huge can of worms. And I'm glad you mentioned that that prospect of, for example, crossing the street to avoid a conflict. In my experience, most of the, most of the cases I work on involve normally law-abiding people, never been in, pro- in trouble with the law before, and now they're facing, typically it's a felony charge, an aggravated assault charge because they pulled out a gun. Uh, And now, of course, the person who was scaring them is claiming, well, I didn't do anything. This person just pulled the gun on me and they're charged with a a serious felony, aggravated assault with a firearm. And typically where these people get in trouble, they don't get in trouble on the extreme ends of kind of the threat continuum. So if we imagine zero threat, they don't get in trouble when there's zero threat. They're not just walking around whipping their gun out of the holster. That doesn't happen. If there's zero threat, nothing's going on. And they don't tend to get into legal trouble when there's a 100% threat. You know, if somebody steps out of a doorway with a raised machete, that's not a complicated legal situation there. You just defend yourself, and and the threat's very clear. Where people tend to get into trouble is somewhere between those two extremes, what I call the zone of ambiguity, where it's not clear what's going on. Something's making you nervous. There's something wrong about that guy. Um, He's behind you in the parking garage, or it's a dark alley, or there's something off about him. But there's not enough evidence to justify yet an explicit use of force on your part. But you're alarmed. Well, what do you do? I get this question a lot from uh, women often. They'll say, hey, what do I do if I'm working late? Everyone's already left the office. I'm by myself. I walk out to the parking garage and I realize there's some guy I've never seen before 30, 40 feet behind. 
And maybe he's walking to his car and it just happens to be parked near my car, but there's something about him that is scaring me. I know I can't just turn around and shoot him because he hasn't actually done anything yet. What can I do? Well, one thing you can do is adopt defensive tactics that help strip away that ambiguity, strip away that uncertainty. You can turn around, challenge that guy in a command voice to stay away from you. If he's a normal guy, what's he going to do? If you're screaming at him, he's going to say, holy cow, this woman's crazy, right? I'm not going to go the other way. Should. Mm -hmm. But if if he keeps closing proximity while you're screaming at him to stay back, is that evidence that he's likely an aggressor? That's not normal behavior on his part, right? Uh, You're stripping away the ambiguity. What you're doing is you're compelling that scary guy to either stop doing what's scaring you on the one hand, which would be awesome, problem solved, or to act consistent with a threat against which you can defend yourself and be able to articulate why you perceived him as a threat in a way that you can articulate to others. I was screaming at him to stay back and he kept coming closer. That's a pretty clear, rational basis for believing somebody's a threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even without them demonstrating any kind of weapon on them or something else like that, if they keep advancing where you're telling them to stay back, telling them, you know, to leave you alone, different things like that, that's clear and convincing evidence. And frankly, trainers should teach their students how to do this. I mean, the, you know, the first step shouldn't be whipping out your gun and pointing it at someone. If you have the luxury, again, consistent with safety, Mm -hmm. if the defender has the luxury of time, give verbal commands, challenge him to stay back. Uh, tell them you're prepared to defend yourself. Tell them, uh, take out your pepper spray canister. You know, slowly escalate things so that the more he continues to act consistent with the threat, the more compelling your narrative is going to be by the end. Definitely. Well, let's move on to the next point. And I'm sure this one's uh, going to get you uh, moving because the one thing I cringe at every time somebody tells me about it is if they shoot somebody outside their house to drag them inside. And that's all part of the castle doctrine, people say. And as long as they're in their house, everything's legal. But I know there's a lot of problems with that, especially when it comes to curtilage and different things along those lines. Yeah, so this is a bit of a complicated subject because um, if people are familiar with what a Venn diagram is, a Venn diagram is if you have, say, two definitions or two circles of circumstances and the circles overlap. So they can be distinct from each other. They're two different things. But to some degree, they overlap and circumstances fall into both those circles at the same time. That's what happens here when we're talking about defense in the context of your home, because there is a legal doctrine called the Castle Doctrine. It's hundreds of years old, um, but it's really very limited in what it does. There are other legal doctrines that give you special privileges for using force in defense of your home, separate from the Castle Doctrine. Uh, I refer to those as... um, doctrines of defense of highly defensible property, which includes your home. But these are two different things, castle doctrine and defense of highly defensible property, special provisions that allow for the use of force are two different things that people get confused. So castle doctrine essentially says, if you would normally have had a duty to retreat, and there's only about 14 states that do this, by the way, there's only 14 duty to retreat states. Again, unfortunately, Ohio is one of them. But if you would normally have had a duty to retreat, if you were outside your home, you're relieved of that duty to retreat when you're inside your home. And the reason behind that is the whole point of having a duty to retreat at all is that in theory, there's a safer place you could go than where you are. Uh, And therefore, if you can go to a safer place, you should not be engaging in the use of force. But if you're the safest place in the world is supposed to be your home. There's 
there is no safer place than your home. So there's no safer place to retreat to from your home. So when you're in your home, when you're in your castle, you're relieved of that otherwise existing legal duty to retreat. What the castle doctrine doesn't do is give you special provisions for using force earlier or using more force against uh, an intruder in your home. There are legal doctrines that do that, but they're not the castle doctrine. They're separate legal doctrines. Uh, the most common of those types of special provisions would be uh, if you're defending yourself uh, against an intruder in your home, the law might legally presume that your perception of that imminent deadly force threat was a legal presumption. Well, we talked about the five elements of a claim of self-defense, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. This legal presumption gives you three of those five legal elements. So that's more than half your justification uh, for your use of force right there. Castle Doctrine gives you the fourth of the five, the element of avoidance. So all that's left is that you were not the aggressor in the fight. So if you're defending yourself in your home and you have the benefit of this special provision for defense of highly defensible property, instead of five elements of a self-defense claim, you only have one element of a self-defense claim that you have to substantiate. That's awesome. That's fantastic. But it's not the castle doctrine. It's something else than the castle doctrine. All castle doctrine does is say, when you're in your castle, you don't have to retreat. These are other separate laws that give you these special provisions like a legal presumption of reasonableness. Now, if we restrict our, our discussion to just castle doctrine, meaning to just that legal duty to retreat or being relieved of that legal duty to retreat, the next question is, well, how far does the castle extend? If you're inside the four walls of your house, that definitely qualifies for the castle doctrine uh, in terms of the scope of the doctrine. Um, but what about when you're outside your home? Well, when you're outside your home, there's a, another related legal doctrine called curtilage. Curtilage is uh, a term that refers to the area immediately around your home that's part of the normal day-to-day -day use of your home. Uh, typically, it includes things like a front porch or a back porch or front yard or backyard. And most states, well, every state recognizes some form of castle doctrine. Almost all of them recognize not just inside the four walls of your house, but also this curtilage, this area immediately around your home. And what that means is that the castle doctrine extends to the curtilage. If you're inside your home, you don't have the legal duty to retreat. If you're within the curtilage of your home, you're outside your home, but within that curtilage outside your home, you also don't have a legal duty to retreat. The danger here is that curtilage is never uh, defined in a black and white way. Uh, it's very conditional. Uh, and fundamentally, it's going to be a judgment call that's made either by the judge or the jury in a trial. Uh, so you never really know if you're in your curtilage or not at the time you're considering you're defending yourself. Because it's not like the law says it's 10 feet or 20 feet or inside a gate. Those are all factors that would be considered, but none of them is absolutely controlling. So at the moment you're defending yourself, you really have no idea if you're in your curtilage or not, because it's not up to you. It's up you to other people. Complicate that with where the bad guy is too. I mean, that, that complicates it even more. Are they within that 10 feet or within, within the fence, you know, those types of things. I'm, right. I'm sure. So, you know, technically the issue is not so much whether he's in your curtilage, but whether or not he's in a position where he can harm you while you're in your curtilage. So say, for example, he has a gun, obviously a gun can reach some distance. Mm -hmm. Uh, so long as you're in your curtilage, you don't have a duty to retreat, even if he's outside it. 
now, he still needs to be a threat against you, an imminent threat, before you can use force against him. But being relieved of that legal duty to retreat isn't a function of where he is. It's a function of where you are. Great, great information. Um, I'm familiar with your instructor program, Andrew, where you go and take instructors through a lot more in depth into these legal points. Can you give us just a real short overview of that program you have? Uh, sure. The short overview would be it's the equivalent of what a, a, a semester long law school class, a 15 week law school class uh, in use of force law would be if any law school taught the subject at that level. And I can tell you they don't. Uh, one thing you always have to be careful of is never assume that just because someone's a lawyer, they know anything about use of force law. I can tell you in three years of law school, we didn't spend even five minutes talking about self-defense. Uh, even in our criminal law class, it was a few minutes, one day, that was it. We never talked about it again. Uh, so if someone's a, a real estate lawyer or a tax lawyer, they're likely to know about as much about use of force law as I know about tax law, real estate law, which is a superficial amount. Um, so what we did was we designed the instructor program to be what a law school class, a full 15-week class would look like if anyone taught it at that level. So it covers everything from uh, the history of self-defense, the natural laws underlying self-defense, all the way from the ancient Greeks and Romans, all the way up through the uh, old English, the roots, the legal roots of our own self-defense law. Uh, and then it goes through each of those five elements and it discusses all the various approaches that different states take, uh, the reasons that different states make different choices and the implications of those choices. So a, a good way to think about it is kind of like a, a PhD course of instruction in, in use of force law. I myself haven't taken that course personally. Uh, I've looked into it several times, but know of several graduates of the program and their knowledge is uh, far superior to mine. And uh, one of these days, my goal is to take that course. So thank you, Andrew. Uh, people want to find more about you in the law of self-defense. How, how would they get in contact with you? Uh, well, they can always go to our, our website, lawselfdefense.com. But frankly, the, the first thing I always tell people to do is something that's completely free, and that's to go to our blog. Uh, much of our blog is locked down for members, but we always have at least some content. Uh, whatever we've published that day is free to everybody, so it doesn't have to cost you a penny uh, to take a look at our work product and how we address these issues. And that can be found simply at lawselfdefense.com forward slash blog. Uh, and if people like it and they'd like to get more access, they can always become uh, an actual member of the of Law Self-Defense. That costs about a quarter a day, so it's not terribly expensive. Uh, but they don't have to pay anything to gain access to new content, new use of force content every day at lawselfdefense.com forward slash blog. Great. Super. Well, that wraps things up for today. If you enjoyed today's show, we have a few important requests to make for you. Tell other instructors about our podcast. Help them become the best they can be. Subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, or whatever your podcast application is. If you have any questions, input, feedback, send an email to FTP. Those are the letters FTP at concealedcarry.com or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Go over and check out the FTA uh, for inst instructor insurance. I have it and think you will like it too once you check them out. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun ownership more knowledgeable. Stay safe.